how does resource extraction, mining, logging, oil and gas, etc., have have spillover or downstream implications, not just on the environment and not just on restoration, but on communities and the health of individuals and the health of communities themselves. Hello, I'm Brian First, and you are listening to a new episode of Rural Roots, a show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. Today's episode features an interview with Dr. Lars Holstrom from University of Alberta. He is the director of the Alberta Center for Sustainable Rural Communities. Lars and I met at the Rural Talks to Rural Conference in Blight, Ontario. I was asked to speak about this podcast and a few other projects we are running out of the Harris Center here at Memorial University. Lars was asked to speak about something much more contentious, rural health. In Canada, we recognize 14 social and economic factors that influence human health. These social determinants of health range from income and education to housing to gender and race. Lars Holstrom thinks we could add living rural to that list. And I actually meant it, uh, not in a facetious way, but having worked within public health and worked with the social determinants of health uh, in Canada, for over a dozen years, um, and having worked in rural development and, and rural public policy now um, for 15, I really do think that some of the factors that we're seeing converging around income, around aging, around social exclusion, around racial disparities, around um, not just access to healthcare, but institutional access, um, around gender, all point to living in rural Canada, and this would apply, of course, in the United States as well, um, as factors that when combined with what our friend Ray Bowman always refers to as the key characteristics of rural, which is distance and density, that if you live in a rural community, um, and particularly for those slightly more removed, slightly more remote or more rural, if there is such a thing, and smaller communities, it may actually be um, a contributing factor to the combination of social determinants of health that can produce even greater health inequities. So it's not just about access to health care. It's not about access to physicians, although these are, of course, policy issues, but rather looking at um, systemically how all of these different things interact to actually exacerbate um, what can be considered a, an issue of relative deprivation. So it's not so much what the absolute levels, whether they're of poverty or age or um, social connectedness are, but how they relate to those in other communities, and particularly, I think, to urban areas. Um, Thus, as a testable hypothesis, it is, I think, conceivable, even from the standpoint of poverty and age alone, that if it isn't already, rural is a possible determinant of health. Concepts of health and well-being are complex. Being well does not just mean that we are not ill, but it includes things like sense of belonging and fulfillment, for example. What Lars is particularly interested in is how changes in rural Canada impact the health of people who live there. I think we can we can talk about a number of different dimensions there. And yes, the, the distinction um, of health and wellness or health and well-being versus health or the what is typically conceptualized as the absent of illness, um, 
which is health, to be healthy means I'm not ill, as opposed to having, um, to being well, which means you have strong social connections, you have support systems, mental health is linked to physical health, is linked to social health, um, to economic well-being, a much more holistic picture. And if we look across rural Canada, um, and not wanting to leave anybody out. First of all, the one conversation that could be had is regarding uh, Aboriginal communities, many of which are rural and remote, and what some might refer to as a public health crisis. Um, there, that's one discussion that can be had. Uh, the second has to do with aging communities. And of course, we know that rural communities across Canada are disproportionate, disproportionately older and aging more quickly than their urban counterparts. Um, so there are the natural um, sort of health-based questions of resilience in aging communities, but also then given issues around uh, labor mobility and capital flight or flight of younger people from rural areas, um, given the challenges of access to infrastructure, particularly transportation, um, not just so that you can go to see a physician, but rather so that you can still have these social networks and have the social capital that contributes to health and well-being. And then adding to that, I think some of the questions that we see that are demographic or generational um, around chronic disease and the linkages between environmental health considerations, um, including, for example, the introduction of pesticides and herbicides uh, at, a, at a large industrial scale. And of course, the regulation and moderation. But we have a long history in this country of using things first and then finding out they weren't so great later on, um, and what that means in terms of cancer prevalence rates, um, how we monitor for chronic disease, and in particular, what are called comorbidities, so having multiple uh, different illnesses. So uh, an individual may be experiencing cancer, but may also have Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, could be Lewy bodies, or different types of dementia. Um, and fitting that within a broader complex of what we call ECH, so environmental community and health. So again, a much more holistic question about what, what the dynamics that are, that are affecting rural communities are doing to the health trajectories of the citizens who live in them at a population level. So of course, we have all kinds of health issues that face, we're very cognizant of what many of these sort of diagnostic questions are, you know, prevalence rates are going up. Uh, in all kinds of areas. It doesn't necessarily mean we have more of them. It means we're better at diagnosing them. But what we're particularly aware of now is how things like um, resource extraction and resource extraction industries and their histories have impacts not just upon the environment, uh, but have legacies potentially um, captured not just through cumulative effects, but cumulative impacts. Uh, and there's a great project at the University of Northern British Columbia on cumulative impacts, which is really looking at how does resource extraction, mining, logging, oil and gas, et cetera, have, have spillover or downstream implications, not just on the environment and not just on restoration, but on communities and the health of individuals and the health of communities themselves. Um, so it's not just a question of what are the contaminants that are being released or have been released, although that can be part of it. The Mount Pauly spill in BC definitely brought that into the, the public's eye. But what are the implications, for example, of resource extraction around um, the social fabric in a community, injecting large amounts of money, potentially, um, as we've seen in Fort McMurray, transient workers, um, might be sex workers, can be lack of affordable housing, can be um, any number of different characteristics that are interacting with each other in a really complex system 
um, that is feeding back into itself as well, as well as across the different sectors that we have. So trying to get a better handle on moving beyond the, the, the more simple proximal drivers of ill health, which can be exposure, um, things like that, sitting, for example, to, to understanding how communities and populations, and particularly in many cases, northern BC um, Aboriginal uh, communities and populations are impacted by these things and how they may also correlate to issues of addiction, uh, to drug use, uh, which are, again, strongly linked to the social determinants of health. The problem with healthcare and well-being is that they're incredibly complex problems. And humans are not very good at solving those kinds of problems. In fact, human desire to reduce complexity to problems that do have solutions makes the whole thing worse. And there's a cognitive dimension to this, which is fairly well recognized, um, that when faced with complexity, cognitively human beings like to dichotomize, to simplify, we use heuristics. There are hundreds of different cognitive biases that, that demonstrate this. And they're, they're positive survival and adaptive evolutionary things. They're there for a reason. But they don't help us deal with multi-layered, multi-directional or recursive feedback cycles. They don't help us deal well with systems that are not really purely linear. Um, and so, particularly from a policy standpoint then, we're trying to still work in what some might call um, a problem-solving model of public policy, which goes back to the New Deal in the United States, um, possibly even the New Deal for municipalities and cities here in Canada um, under the Martin government. But increasingly, we're aware of the fact that the bureaucratic models of public administration and policymaking and politics, um, the siloing or the departmentalization of expertise, which makes perfect sense for simple and complicated problems, um, really does not work well. It actually is a liability when we start to deal with complex issues, complex issues that are by definition going to be highly dynamic. They're going to change. They may work one way in one place for one week and then in a completely different way the next week or the next year or a completely different way in another part of the country. So we have to balance the desire to be completely localized um, which can have great benefits, and to be being place-based for public policy, having context is a key component of public policy design. But we also have to then reconcile that with our broader kind of scientific desire to have generalizability and economies of scale, and to, to deal with particularly um, ill health in a way that is, if not efficient, then at least effective and marginally efficient, because we are often talking about public dollars. Um, and in a way that, that reconciles with the federal, provincial, and territorial structures that we have in place, which is a complex system in and of itself. Um, and then still manage to have both biomedical accountability as well as broader political and community accountability around issues. And you can't just, uh, we don't live in a state where population-wide health interventions can be applied because the medical community or the policy community says so. We can't yet. We don't ban fast food. Um, we haven't yet labeled French fries, although that, that's been on the table for, pardon the pun, quite a while now. Um, so how do we, as a society, come to terms with this is really the question, because what Val Brown has um, identified in terms of wicked problems or highly complex problems is that they're fundamentally social questions. It's a social mess. And so we then, societally, 
have to start to find ways to to think about how we think about the values and the context and the audience and how we want to bring these things into our policies to reconcile um, and to, to engage publicly and deliberatively with these these issues at the same time that we're looking for and seeking biomedical evidence, population health evidence, etc. I asked Lars what would be a better, not great, but a better health system. Uh, there's a long history of, of academic work on the, sort of the politics and policy of healthcare in this country, and, and federalism uh, is not in and of itself to blame, um, but it is a factor, it's a variable in the question. And the dynamics between how we move funding and accountability and responsibility, um, under, of course, the Constitution Act, um, there are some real questions about how the provinces and the federal government interact on issues of health and well-being. And it may extend to public health. Um, it, of course, can include environmental health questions, environment being a provincial responsibility. Um, it can extend as far as organ and tissue donation and some of the tensions that exist between having a national registry and system for organ and tissue donation and, of course, transplantation versus provincial initiatives. Um, the broader story being none of these things really add up to a terribly efficient um, thing that although we like to use the word, use the term health system or healthcare system, really isn't very systemic or very systematic. Um, what we have are actually multiple layers of different organizations and institutional arrangements that may have some system-like characteristics, but we have far from anything that is really a holistic healthcare system. So it's, it's really uh, a nice catchphrase, or it's an easy word to say to talk about the you know, Canadian healthcare as a system. Um, and because it is quite dynamic and because we're constantly dealing with values around what constitutes ill health, what constitutes wellness, where the, what are the priority populations, there are really a lot of moving parts at every level from low, small communities that are struggling with access to or retaining physicians and nursing to the implementation of telehealth to um, continuing care for aging populations to county and regional and, and provincial frameworks and policies, issues of regionalization versus deregionalization, and then, of course, national questions around how resources move, and, of course, the political elements of this around what drives um, particularly health care spending um, from a political standpoint, and it's not always necessarily um, as explainable by health and wellness as it is by other factors. And so we can't take the politics out of public policy, of course. What do you mean politically how the spending plays? So like, give me an example. So this is not my my language. Um, there are a number of very good books on, on Canadian federalism. But the politics of blame avoidance is a phrase that has been used uh, specifically in regards to health care in Canada. And in many ways, it makes sense. We have a federal system. We have some asymmetries within that federal system. Um, the FPT dynamic is, of course, always present, especially when you're dealing with the federal government. Um, but the, the, the explanation that is often put forward is it's, in many ways, less a question around how do we improve the health of Canadians or the health and well-being of Canadians, but rather what is the game that is being played between the provinces and the federal government around the broader question of health care, and particularly fiscal, uh, fiscal federalism or the movement of money to pay for health care. 
And so the politics of blame avoidance is one which, from the standpoint of political science, makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's quite rational to try to minimize risk, and if you can, transfer some risk exposure to other parties. Uh, and that history, of course, in Canadian federalism extends beyond health care and can be traced back decades, if not you know, conceivably to 1867 or before. Um, but the, the bigger takeaway from that is maybe to question the, the often common assumption that the that healthcare spending and health budgets are, of course, to improve the health of Canadians. And we, we do that, or to maintain the health of Canadians, but there are other factors uh, that are not individually attributable. They're part of the system that we have politically that is at play in terms of Canadian federalism. Caught in policies and politics that shift like quicksand, Rural communities often feel there is not much they can do when it comes to health of their citizens. I wanted to know if we have some solutions that work. Well, I don't know whether we can call them solutions because that implies a long term, we've solved the problem. Um, but there are different initiatives that certainly have, have emerged that are success stories, albeit maybe for short short periods. One from the Maritimes is the people access, assessing their health program, the PATH. This was a pilot program in the 1990s, but it was around building community health boards to do public health impact assessments of public policy that were community-oriented. They were deliberative, and it was about getting the community to decide where the priorities and where the risks were around health and to not simply be recipients of whether they were public health or other or intersectoral initiatives. So you might be looking at infrastructural um, initiatives or educational initiatives um, or economic initiatives and say, well, let's, let's take a minute and assess this as a community with a combination of qualified um, people from the medical professions, from public health, from nursing, et cetera, as well as community members. And let's talk about what are the implications of this at a community level. And that, that's widely recognized as a very innovative and actually relatively low-cost mechanism of improving the validity and the efficacy um, of public policy more broadly from a public health standpoint. Other initiatives I think that we've seen, um, for example, in northern British Columbia, the, the initiative I mentioned earlier, the CERC, uh, which is the Cumulative Impacts Research Consortium, is, while relatively new, literally seeking to identify a new paradigm for impact assessment um, and is very in innovative in that sense because it's not working within the conventional assumptions of integrated impact assessment or social or environmental or health impact assessment, but really looking at the interaction effects across environmental, community, and health questions. And particularly then, of course, you can start to engage with questions of how um, socioeconomic disparities, um, social disadvantage, um, implications for Aboriginal communities or particularly remote communities play into this and how some of the tensions that might be felt for a small community that's really seeking on one hand to generate economic benefits and so wanting to bring in, let's have the big mine, let's have forestry. Forestry is great. Um, <clears throat> Many people don't know this, but at one point, not that long ago, Prince George was the second largest city in British Columbia um, and one of the wealthiest. I think had actually the, the highest proportion of millionaires in, if not Western Canada, then Canada, because they were all individually owned uh, sawmills, woodlots and sawmills. That, of course, has changed. Um, but if you look at the, the socioeconomic demographics uh, in that area, and if you look at the, the sheer proliferation of resource extraction across Western Canada, in particular in BC and Alberta, 
having a better understanding of where social inequities may be exacerbated, and so you're reducing overall levels of community health, or you're introducing additional risks into community health status, um, how environmental considerations can leave not only ex sort of exposure legacies, but also how the interactions between community and environment will change over time, and what that means then for the health and well-being of the community, not just from an environmental standpoint, but in terms of their engagement with nature, their activity levels. Um, we're seeing increasing initiatives linking um, experiences with nature and palliative care and end-of-life care. So not even how we're healthy, but actually how we, we end our lives. So a whole range of different ways to expand our thinking um, about the linkages between health as individuals, the health of our communities, our health as individuals within a community, and then the situation of those communities within the broader environment. So something very much consistent with the social determinants of health and thinking quite literally up and downstream from your community. So those are, those are two very quick, quick examples. Lars believes that universities in Canada have an important role to play in enhancing the health and well-being of rural residents. I think there is actually a huge opportunity there. Traditionally, universities are understood to be sites of research and teaching. More recently, knowledge transfer, knowledge translation. Um, we have not necessarily done a good job in Canada on both sides of the equation of linking research to public policy. So the, the first and immediate organizational response is uh, to, to support evidence-informed public policy and decision-making for practitioners, for policymakers from might be local um, community health nurses or public health nurses, might be public health officers, all the way up to broader provincial and national initiatives um, for any number of different health issues. But being able to, we, we can't always provide answers, but we can provide a series of answers and perspectives. And in many cases, there is a lot of evidence, particularly for the, the less complex, but the more, the more complicated questions, we do have a lot of evidence through the Cochrane collaborations, et cetera, that isn't necessarily being brought to bear. There is an awareness of what that can be. So that's you know, linking what already exists. Beyond that, however, I think we have an obligation to, to conduct education in a different way. Uh, not just education of the next round of practitioners or physicians or policymakers or political scientists or journalists, but to think about how we link our educational systems to broader questions of environmental and community and health linkages. This can extend from issues around nutrition and food systems, of course, which has a lot of political resonance right now um, and, of course, has implications for Aboriginal communities but also to questions about how we are teaching people to think about public policy, teaching people to think about what the role of research within public policy can or might be. It's, of course, not the only element within public policy, but also shifting the role of the post-secondary sector. I think particularly universities, which may be somewhat rightly accused of being somewhat removed from, from society in, in some disciplines, but understanding that in Canada these are public institutions and have a role and can be beneficial within talking about and, uh, and thinking about strategies for dealing with complex problems. And we, we may or may not end up with a solution, but there are a lot of resources uh, within post-secondary institutions that can support the public good. Health and well-being issues in many Aboriginal communities are even more complex than in the rest of rural and remote Canada. 
Centuries of colonialism left deep scars that the rest of the country is just starting to come to terms with. In Canada, the federal government is almost entirely responsible for the service delivery in Aboriginal and Indigenous communities, and so it bears the most responsibility for the well-being and the delivery of health services in those communities. Having been on an, in, and in a number of Aboriginal communities in, in Alberta and in the Maritimes and in BC, there are some very clear lines when you can see these jurisdictional factors are, are literally on the ground um, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of services, in terms of what many of us would consider necessary services for contemporary existence. Um, and, you know, in, in Australia, one of the, the key examples that the Australian government has used of a wicked problem is Aboriginal disadvantage. Um, but I think in Canada, we've very much struggled and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, the continued resonance of residential schools, um, the, the lack of action on the recommendations regarding residential schools. Um, I think there were 440 such recommendations uh, several decades ago. Points to a certain reluctance, possibly to engage with the complexity um, of two to three hundred years of decision-making, um, and not just by the federal government, but by religious organizations, by the provinces in different ways, um, and by a broader socio-political context across North America. Uh, I think very clearly, however, one can, if, we're, if one was going to point fingers, as you point out, that, that finger lies jurisdictionally within a pretty clear body of decision-making. And from a health standpoint, um, you're talking about one of the few actually growing populations in Canada, particularly for younger Aboriginals. Um, issues of distance and density are highly present, and the determinants of health are critical in, in understanding um, some of these, these health profiles that we see, whether it's fetal, fetal alcohol syndrome, whether it's alcoholism itself, drug use, social exclusion, none of these things are inherent. They are, in fact, uh, and really well documented as being a direct outcome of the social determinants of health. If you marginalize a community for 200 years, there will be serious implications that extend simply beyond that community from the individual level all the way up through into larger populations. Um, we're very much in Western Canada still struggling with issues around the status of Métis communities. Um, I think in the north, as climate change perhaps continues to create issues around food, uh, foods and food insecurity, um, there are there's a whole complex of issues that we're really actually just starting to. So we're just part of the pun, the tip of the iceberg, um, and it will require significant political will to to engage with and to understand that these are not things that can be solved. We cannot make them go away. Um, they can at best perhaps be managed. They are part of the social mess that we are living with and dealing with every day. And it's not a new mess, but we're much more cognizant of how messy that mess now is. Solving the multitude of issues that make health and well-being a complex problem is beyond the jurisdiction and scope of local governments. But Lars Holström believes that when we start looking at well-being as a holistic concept, there is a lot that communities can do. You know, the knowledge of the social determinants of health and the potential for municipalities to undertake initiatives that are not directly health, but that are social, that are family and community support services based, that are physical fitness, that are community inclusion, um, all of these things 
that, that seek to, to link um, the elderly with youth, that seek to build social capital. There are any number of different things that can be done there that um, may not even be directly health-oriented. They can be. I mentioned yesterday the example of a, an outdoor public exercise facility in Camrose, which is really situated for, for general community use, but also really accessible. It's, it's wheelchair accessible, and it's located in close proximity to a number of continuing care facilities. It's located in a beautiful park, but it's also next to a playground. So you can, as I have, take your kids to the playground, and while they play, get in a little workout while you can actually watch them from from the gym, but there are also older people there, uh, people with disabilities who are utilizing this. That does more than simply improve uh, strength and flexibility. Um, the bigger byproducts of that, the, re the real value added, if you use that term, are the social connections, building social capital, helping to alleviate some of the implications of a very compartmentalized society that we live in. Um, and even in many rural communities, if you're older and you have issues of mobility, um, you, can, you know, isolation is is a real challenge. So finding ways to link youth, finding ways to use that as a, um, an entry lever into other questions about accessibility, about poverty reduction, about what the role of the municipality can be in terms not of the delivery of health care, but rather as a promoter of, of health and wellness. And I think that's an area that we, it's been very convenient in some ways to think about health as health care and where all that money goes. We think about physicians and nurses and hospitals and doctors and stuff. But if we think about communities as also being more than just stakeholders, but as sources of health and well-being, it changes where you can have these entry points into designing programs. Uh, and I'll come back again to this idea of policy design, of thinking about the values, the audience, and the context within which you're making um, public goods type decisions, thinking about well, what will an initiative like improving walkability in a community do for that community? Will it have environmental impacts? Will it have health impacts? Will it have social impacts? Will it actually contribute to the broader social fabric of this community? Can we innovate in ways that extend across different sectors? And this is the key point of intersectoral action is to be cognizant of where um, negative health effects might be generated by non-health-based decisions, but also where positive health outcomes and health and well-being outcomes can be generated from decisions that are not directly oriented towards health. And that, I think, is an area that municipalities can be very innovative in. Um, it's not necessarily about putting beds in or building facilities. It can be about improving across a multitude of sectors the quality of life in that community. Uh, and that has spillover effects that can become economic, become developmental, that can be political, um, but for a lot of, of communities, it's, this is new to the table. So there is hope? Yes, there's always hope. You just listened to another episode of Rural Roots. My name is Boyan Fierst, and my guest today was Dr. Lars Holstrom, the director of the Alberta Center for Sustainable Rural Communities at the University of Alberta. We spoke about health and well-being in rural Canada. Rural Roots is produced in collaboration between the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. The show is supported through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. 
North Star is the song you can hear at the beginning and the end of this show. The song was composed by Laura Bates and performed by Trent Severn. If you listened to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, please let us know if you liked the show. If you listened to the podcast version of the show, feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they are interested in broadcasting the program. The show is available to community and campus radio stations free of charge through the National Campus and Community Radio Association Program Exchange. Thanks for listening and I hope you join us next time. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, ruralrootspodcasts.com. I am Boyan First and you just listened to Rural Roots. Stay in touch.